Hello, mystery fans, and welcome to episode two of Marcy McCreary's The Disappearance of Trudy Solomon. I am Meredith, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on The Disappearance of Trudy Solomon, Trudy Solomon, a Catskills waitress who went missing 40 years ago, was found but her Alzheimer's won't let her recall her story. Retired detective Will Ford is determined to find out if there's an innocent explanation for Trudy Solomon's disappearance or if something more sinister is at play and convinces his daughter, Detective Susan Ford, to reopen the cold case. Chapter 7 Thursday, November 1st, 2018 Dad's pickup truck had been rear-ended earlier in the week, leaving him stranded and making me his glorified chauffeur. When I pulled up to the entrance of Horizon Meadows, I spotted him, head-tipped and sitting slightly slouched on a concrete bench. A human question mark. At his feet were two banker boxes full of forest green file folders. The first time I saw those folders was in 1978. The last time was in 1999, about two months after graduating from the police academy, when I couldn't help but take a sneak peek at them. I raised the rear hatch of my Prius and hoisted the boxes into the cargo area. I hadn't seen the contents of these boxes in 19 years, but I remembered Dad's organizational system. Each file folder was labeled with a color-coded sticker, blue for witnesses, green for suspects, purple for friends, yellow for theories, orange for leads. Within each file were manila folders containing witness interview notes, suspect statements and alibis, potential motives, and biographical info extracted from Trudy's friends and acquaintances. No one could ever accuse Dad of not being organized, it was clearly one of the many reasons he parted ways with my disorganized, messy mother. If cleanliness was next to godliness, he was in the orchestra section, front row, and she was up in the balcony, last row. He lived a clutter-free and tidy life even before he got wind of Marie Kondo. But when his buddies bought him the life-changing magic of tidying up, as a gag gift for his 77th birthday, he ratcheted up his obsession to the next level. The nurses told me he was going apartment to apartment, trying to convince his neighbors to embrace the KonMari movement. Maybe this explained his desire to get mom's life in order. Are these all the case files? I asked as we simultaneously buckled in. That's everything. Eldridge brought them by yesterday. You hungry? Want to stop somewhere first? I've been waiting four decades to dig back into this case, and you think I want to stop and get something to eat? Susan, I'm an old man. I ain't got time to spare. Let's just get to it. I headed west on Route 17B toward Bethel. Fifteen minutes later, we arrived at my house. The gravel crackling under my tires aroused Moxie from her favorite resting spot on the porch. Moxie's mother was a black Labrador retriever, her father, unknown. 
That mysterious breed produced tufts of light brown patches on her sides and belly. But her boxy build and curious face were clearly in the lab camp. She lazily lifted her head, as if to decide whether it was worth getting up. It was. She stood when I stepped out of the car. She could only go so far on her 20-foot tie-out and arthritic hind legs, but she managed to limp down the three steps with her tail in full swing. How old is the old mutt now? Thirteen. I read on some dog website that that makes her 82 in human years. You're just a few years younger than her. I squatted to release her from the tie-out, and she followed us inside. To avoid a conversation about my housekeeping skills, or lack thereof, I had tidied the place the day before. Even so, Dad couldn't help but surreptitiously poke around and assess my ability— or inability to keep only those things that sparked joy. I was more like my father than my mother when it came to being a pack rat. Not particularly sentimental, I tended to discard things without contemplating their future personal value. Ten years ago, I bought this house from a woman who was moving to Asheville, North Carolina. I figured it was a good investment if the gambling referendum passed. If not, well... I had a nice lakeside cottage just ten minutes from Yasger's farm, the Woodstock Festival site. The previous owner had left her furniture, a mishmash of eclectic pieces that either elicited compliments for my aesthetic eye toward shabby chic or raised eyebrows for my inability to create a coherent style. I converted a barely-used three-season porch into a cozy home office— the narrow 5 by 10 room provided just enough space for a desk, chair, and one filing cabinet. Too small for Dad and me to spread out the contents of the boxes, let alone be in the room at the same time without getting in each other's way, or on each other's nerves, since we both tended to pace. Ray said we could commandeer the dining room. We rarely used it anyway. We preferred eating breakfast at the kitchen island and dinner on the living room couch, usually watching foreign detective shows on Netflix. Cozy mysteries where British hamlets with silly names were awash with murder and mayhem, or gritty crime procedurals with psychologically damaged cops, usually of the female persuasion. Earlier in the week, I had purchased a portable whiteboard on which to hang pictures of our suspects, should we determine foul play, and map out a visual timeline of Trudy's movements after her disappearance. Dad sipped coffee while I rummaged through the boxes. I found a faded Polaroid of Trudy and stuck it in the upper left corner of the whiteboard. Then I taped a picture of Trudy's husband, Ben Solomon, on the board under a column marked Suspects. Suspected of what? Well, we were not really sure. Yet. So, Dad, why is Mom under the impression that reopening the case was my idea? And what's with the guy you've rented? Oh, yeah, that. Meant to tell you. It slipped my mind because of all of this, Dad said, sweeping his arm across the table. Nice kid. Needed a place to stay. And your mother needs some help. Housekeeping was never her strong suit, so I matched them up. It's not like you use your bedroom. Okay, but... As for why she thinks it's your idea to investigate this thing... I kind of positioned it that way. I wasn't in the mood to get into a dust-up with her, so I laid this at your feet. She'll get over it. 
Sorry about that. Why is she so adamant that we shouldn't do this? Not sure, except she wasn't thrilled with this case 40 years ago either. She thought I was obsessed. Perhaps she's afraid you'll get obsessed. It does take a lot out of you to grind on one case for years. Well, I'm game for an obsession right now. So, how do I put this kindly? F you, Mom. That's the spirit. So, here's what I'm thinking. First, let's see what other hits we can get on Trudy's social security number. See where it leads us. Second, let's put out feelers on those Facebook groups I told you about. And third, let's determine whom we can interview from these old files. Figure out who's still alive and worth having a conversation with. Okay, I'll run the social. You do the Facebook stuff. I never really embraced Facebook the way many of my friends and colleagues did. I rarely posted anything. I logged on once or twice a week to see what my friends were up to. I guess I was more of a Facebook voyeur. Natalie, however, was a prolific poster. Mostly pictures of the twins, but also dishes she cooked, political articles from liberal-leaning news outlets, vacation pictures, and dogs doing cute things videos. If she wasn't on Facebook, I probably would have never signed up. Before I dive into Facebook, I'm going to email Ben Solomon, Dad said. He's living in Ellenville these days. Maybe he'll meet us for coffee. He seemed genuinely shocked when I phoned him and told him Trudy was alive. He asked me if that makes him a bigamist. That was his first concern, himself. Didn't even ask if she was okay or what had become of her. And you still think he had something to do with her disappearance? I just don't think he's as innocent as he claims to be. A friendly face-to-face over a cup of joe might yield some tidbits of information we couldn't get out of him 40 years ago. Nodding, I powered up my laptop and plugged Trudy's social security number into the database. It was linked to two medical records. One was associated with the Lowell Memory Care facility where Ray had found her. Prior to that, her social security number was linked to a 2008 stay at a mental hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. Nothing before that date, which meant she never filed for taxes, nor was she employed, unless she took money under the table. Was this purposeful? Did she just want to live her life under the radar? Had she been hiding from someone? Or, as Dad suspected, Had she been held against her will until she became a burden or of no further use to her captor? When Dad finished typing his email to Ben, he clicked over to Facebook. The Mill Basin Brooklyn page is public, but in order to post on the Summers at the Cutman page, I have to seek permission from the site's administrator. And that would be Merrill Roth. Dad tilted his head forward and peered over the rim of his reading glasses. Being that you were friends with her, maybe you should ask to join. Merrill was older than her sister Lori by two years. Although I had been best friends with Lori, I never really hung out with Merrill. She rotated in a different orbit. I wasn't exactly jealous of her, but I sure did envy her. She was the definition of 70s cool. Big hair, perfectly quaffed a la Farrah Fawcett, the trendy wardrobe, fry boots, tube tops, 
tight-fitting designer jeans, Daisy Dukes, candies, platforms, the stretchy wrap skirts made famous in Saturday Night Fever. She was the first girl to buy a mood ring. Everyone followed suit. I wasn't exactly friends with her, but I get your point. It probably makes more sense if I join this group. When we were done requesting entree into our respective Facebook groups, Dad made his way once again to the bathroom. He didn't want to talk about it, and that was fine with me. Did I really want to hear about his prostate? He claimed it was under control, nothing to worry about. Old man problems, he groused. I removed the folders from the boxes and laid them out on the table. Our plan was to read every scrap of paper in these files, get ourselves reacquainted with the case, and make note of who was still alive and who could be interviewed. Dad, do you know Clara Cole? I asked when he re-entered the dining room. She's a nurse at Horizon Meadows. Sounds familiar, but I'm not conjuring up a face. She's Rhonda's mother? Rhonda? Local BLM organizer. Right. Go on. Well, it just so happens she was a student nurse working for Trudy's doctor at the time of her disappearance. I pulled Clara's witness statement from the pile and handed it over to Dad. It looks like your partner Sam interviewed her. Well, son of a gun. Small world. My computer dinged, alerting me to a private message in Messenger. OMG, Susie Ford! How the heck are you? I stalked over to your Facebook page and see you still live in the Borscht Belt, ha-ha, and that you followed in your dad's footsteps. Should I address you as Detective Ford? LOL. What brings you to the Summers at the Cutman Group? Looking to reconnect with old friends? I also moderate our high school Facebook page. Check that out. Lots of fun memories there. Best, Merrill. Susie, a name I thought I would never hear again. When I turned 13, Susie just didn't feel right. It felt babyish. And Dad sometimes called me Susie Q, which embarrassed me in front of my friends. The name on my birth certificate was Suzanne. At the time, I felt that was too stuffy. Still do. I wanted to change my name to Natalie. I had just seen West Side Story. But no one would abide by my wishes. So we settled on Susan. Dad got the hang of it almost immediately. But it took my mother nearly a year to remember to call me Susan. Maybe it was the vodka. Maybe she didn't give a shit. As for the rest of the message, OMG was right. So many exclamation points. What was protocol here? Should I reciprocate with the same level of enthusiasm? I didn't want to come across as a cop badgering her Facebook group. Just needed to give enough information to intrigue her, but not too much to scare her away and lose access to the group. I remembered Dad saying that Stanley Roth was livid about the amount of police presence on his property and blamed the investigation for canceled reservations that year. His anger was enough to draw Dad's suspicions, but there was no circumstantial or hard evidence to implicate the family. There was also pressure from the upper echelon of the police department to leave the Roth family alone. 
The Roths and other hotel owners were powerful people with political friends who gave generously to police charitable funds. Dad pushed the envelope as far as he could. Hi, Merrill. Yep, still here in the Catskills. The area is starting to turn around with gambling on the horizon. I'm actually working a cold case and was hoping to find Cutman people who might be able to help me, staff and guests who were there in the mid-70s. A little stroll down memory lane might help me solve the case. Also, would love to get in touch with Lori. It would be great to say hi to her after all these years. How are your folks? Your brothers? Hope all is well. Best regards, Susan. Six exclamation points felt about right. As for the sentiment about Lori, perhaps over the top. Love seemed a bit much. I changed love to like and hit send. When I reloaded the Summers at the Cutman page a few minutes later, I was a member of the group. Hey, Dad, I'm in. He shot me a thumbs up. I'll let you know if Merrill says it's okay to post about the case. Well, I'm not asking for permission. I'm diving right in. Dad peeked over his laptop. What's with these piles? I sorted the old interview files, separated the living from the dead. The doctor Trudy had the appointment with is dead. Max Whittier, the guy from the parking lot who saw Ben drop off Trudy, is dead. Trudy's best friend at the time, Maxine Cohen, is dead. I scanned Maxine's file. According to her statement, she was shopping in Middletown when Trudy disappeared and claimed to have no idea as to what might have happened to her. Maxine Cohen. Kind of remember her. A down-on-her-luck type. But her neighbor, Eleanor Campbell, is alive, and get this, she still lives in Monticello. All the Roths are alive. I saw a post on the Cutman page about the parents living in Florida. They must be, what, in their late 70s? Yeah, I went to high school with Rachel Roth. She was a year ahead of me, so that makes her 78. She was quite the looker back then. By any chance, did you find interview notes with a guy named Lenny? He was the hotel coffee shop manager at the time. Another piece of work. Yep, he's in my alive pile. What's his story? Trudy complained to Rachel that Lenny constantly groped and harassed her, so Rachel fired him. He was escorted off the property. Rachel said he was spitting mad at Trudy, yelling shit like, You'll be sorry, and you better watch your back. But he had an alibi for around the time she was dropped off at the hospital. Even so, I think he's worth looking at again. I flipped through the Leonard Lenny Berman file. Well, what have we here? A police record. Seems harassing Trudy wasn't his first rodeo. Got picked up for solicitation. I loosened the staple that secured his mugshot to the arrest sheet, separated the two documents, and tacked the photo to the whiteboard under Persons of Interest. I'm going to call that mental hospital in Belmont, Dad said. See what I can find out about why she was there. Do you have the number? I jotted down the phone number of McNair Hospital and handed him the piece of paper. Before you call, I want you to eat something. I made a sandwich for you. It's on the counter. I needed him to slow down, take care of himself. I feared he would fulfill my mother's prophecy of being killed by this case. I could have used a bite myself, but a ding from my computer pulled me back into the dining room. 
Hi, Susan. I remember when you changed your name from Susie to Susan. Sorry about that. Old habits die hard. So, you're trying to solve a cold case. Sounds intriguing. This Facebook group could use a little excitement. It would be cool if you could crack the case with info from one of our group members. You should friend Lori. Her married name is McDonald, which didn't go over well with the parents. She lives in Venice, California, not Italy. I'll give her a heads up that you'll be getting in touch. Josh is still in the hospitality business, runs a bed and breakfast in Vermont with his husband. That also didn't go over too well with my parents, although they did attend his wedding. Scott lives in Florida, pretty successful guy, owns a bunch of car dealerships. He's recently divorced from wife number two. That's what we call her. The earlier one is, you guessed it, wife number one. He recently got engaged to future wife number three. My parents live in Jupiter, Florida. Mom is in pretty good health, knock on wood. Dad has had some health issues, but my mother is caring for him. I'm living in New Jersey these days. Earlier this year, I retired from my life as a literary agent. I've taken up genealogical research, trying to piece together our family tree. Hope all is well with you. Best, Merrill. My palms felt like a bed of moss covered with a thin membrane of morning dew. Just hearing about the exploits of the Roth family threw my Palmer hyperhidrosis into overdrive. I unsealed a mason jar full of fireflies. Just try recapturing those motherfuckers. Meryl will tell Lori, if she hadn't already, that I reached out to her. Will she expect to hear from me? Lori and I did not part ways amicably. It was more like a slow burn of cruel gestures and remarks as we grew out of our childhood, best friends forever promise. I typed Lori Roth McDonald into the Facebook search box. There she was. Her page was private, so all I could see were a few photos. In one, she was holding a baby with the caption, Yikes, I'm a grandma! This family loved their exclamation points. I hovered over the message icon. Here goes nothing. Hi, Lori. Hope this message finds you well. Meryl and I connected through Facebook, and she might have mentioned to you that I would be getting in touch. First things first. I'd like to get the elephant in the room out of the way. I know our friendship crumbled in high school, but I do look back fondly on the good times we had in elementary and beginning of high school. Whenever I pass the hotel grounds, I think of all the mischievous things we did. I heard you went to Boston University and currently live in California. I paved a different path. Went to SUNY Albany after high school, after a gap year. Worked as a location scout for a production company in New York City for 10 years. But when my dad had a heart attack, I came back home and enrolled in the police academy. Followed in my dad's footsteps, so to speak. Would love to hear what you're up to, but I'd understand if you would prefer to keep the past in the past. Friendship crumbled. Was there a better word or phrase to use there? Disintegrated. Dissolved. Terminated ceased to exist, ended in a barrage of mean and vicious backstabbing. I stuck with crumbled and hit send. Back at the Summers at the Cutman page, I composed a message about the Trudy Solomon case. 
Cold Case Investigation needs your help. Looking for friends, co-workers, acquaintances who knew Trudy Solomon, nay Gertrude Feldman. She worked at the Cutman Hotel from 1974 to 1978. She went missing on August 6, 1978. There's been a recent break in the case. Link to news article below. Monticello Police Department trying to piece together her life or determine if any criminal activity was involved in her disappearance. Please PM if you have any recollection of her that you could share. Any little detail will be helpful. Thank you, Detective Susan Ford. There. Done. No turning back. I headed into the kitchen for a cup of coffee. Dad was on the phone with the mental hospital in Belmont doing what he did best, convincing the person on the other end to, as he put it, cough up the goods. I was only half listening, but it sounded like they kept putting him on hold as they shuffled him from one department to another. I took my coffee back into the dining room and surveyed the files in front of me, wondering how I ended up getting sucked into this. I banished that thought and resumed the task of separating the living from the dead. Pack your bags, Susan. We hit the road on Sunday, Dad proclaimed, bursting into the dining room like he was raiding the place. The doctor who treated Trudy still works at McNair, the hospital in Belmont, and is willing to chat with us, but only in person. Dr. Jacqueline Blanchard is her name. She said she's available Monday morning, so I figure we drive out there on Sunday and stay overnight at a nearby hotel. And get this, Trudy was admitted as Gertrude Resnick, same last name as in Lowell. Dr. Blanchard can't discuss any medical issues because Trudy is still alive, doctor-patient confidentiality and all that, but she told me she always thought how strange her situation was and how they couldn't get in touch with the woman who brought her there. And here's the kicker. The doctor said that back then the police were sniffing around as well, as Trudy was thought to be a possible witness to a murder. So we might want to head over to the local police station while we're there to see if they can shed some light on that. Holy shit. How long was she in that hospital? Five years, 2008 to 2012. She was moved to the Lowell Nursing Home when McNair shut down their Alzheimer's unit. In 2008, she would have been 57. That's awfully young to have Alzheimer's. Early onset. We've got a couple of them at Horizon. One woman is in her early 50s. Dad's computer dinged. Well, looky here. If it ain't my good friend, Ben. Says he's willing to meet with us tomorrow morning at Moe's Diner in Ellenville. Wish we had this internet thing back in my policing days. Makes tracking down people too easy. I hadn't seen Dad this excited in a very long time. Mom, as usual, was wrong. Even if there was an innocent explanation to Trudy's disappearance, at least Dad felt useful again. He seemed invigorated, to the point where he actually looked a few years younger. There was a spring in his step, an unmistakable energy in his voice. He found the thing that sparked joy. Me? I was still waiting for the fuse to light. Trudy Trudy peered out her window at the parking lot below, looking for the car that was supposed to pick her up. She scanned the lot. Is that Max, the guy from the post office? 
I mustn't let him see me. She slid the curtain along the rod. She waited a few seconds, then parted the curtains. He was gone. Good morning, Trudy, the nurse said as she entered the room. Trudy suddenly stepped away from the curtains. Sorry, did I give you a fright? I have to go downstairs, Trudy said. A man is going to pick me up. A man? What man? Trudy brought her finger up to her lips. I can't tell you. It's a secret. Trudy peered out the window again. There, there, the green car. He's here. The nurse walked over to the window and glanced down at Dr. Meadows' green Buick. That's Dr. Meadows, Trudy. He's coming to work. Trudy closed her eyes. I got in a green car, a different green car. I was taken away. She remembered for a moment, there and gone in a flash. Chapter 8 Saturday, November 3rd, 2018 How did the meeting with Ben go, babe? Ray asked. Did he sing like a canary? Sing like a canary. Another expression Ray often used. Sometimes it felt like I was in a hard-boiled detective novel when talking to him about a case. He was as dead as a car on a sub-zero morning, sweetheart. He went through a Mickey Spillaney phase, read at least five Mike Hammer books a few years back. Next up was Robert Parker, then James Elroy. He got me into Sue Grafton. I'm up to G is for gumshoe. At the rate I read, I was pretty sure I'd be close to retirement by the time I'd make my way through the series. If you're asking if he confessed, no, he didn't sing like a canary. He pretty much stuck to the story he told Dad back in 78. He dropped her off in the hospital parking lot and drove off. Came back an hour later, and when she didn't materialize, he went in to find her. The receptionist told him that she never checked in. He left, spent the day looking for her around the hotel and asking her friends if they'd seen her. That night, when she didn't come home, he called her in missing. Cops told him to come by in the morning and file a missing persons report. Ah, the old 24-hour rule. We did manage to get a bit more information about her state of mind. He said their marriage was on the rocks, but he didn't bring it up at the time because he thought it would make him look suspicious. He also said she'd been very agitated for about a month before her disappearance. Claims he found her crying several times and that she had become mopey and withdrawn. Jumpy, too. Like if he walked in a room, he noticed that she startled. At one point, she told him she was looking for work at a different hotel, that she didn't like working at the Cutman anymore. But it was midsummer and no one was hiring. So perhaps something or someone put a scare in her, Ray said. Maybe she was in some kind of danger. In the old police report, Ben described a thin-faced, lanky guy with a bushy mustache. He supposedly spotted him chatting up Trudy several times in the months before she disappeared. Dad thought Ben made the guy up, trying to mislead him. He asked around, and no one else corroborated this sighting. But when he pushed Ben on this yesterday, Ben said he definitely remembers this guy. Claimed he could still pick him out of a lineup if we found him. 
Wait a sec. I walked over to the dining room table and sifted through the papers. Look at this drawing. Holy shit. I was wondering who that... Ray caught himself. Sorry, I peeked at the files. I rolled my eyes, letting it slide. I think this is the guy Ben described. This police sketch was loose at the bottom of the box, so I thought it might have been from a different case and mistakenly ended up in there. Dad didn't mention a sketch, but he might have forgotten about it. I taped the mustached man to the whiteboard under the person of interest heading and scribbled hotel worker slash vendor slash guest above his portrait. His eyes were narrow, eyelashes long, almost feminine. His cheeks were sunken, with long dimples extending from the bottom of his cheekbones to just below his lower lip. His jaw descended to a point, creating the illusion of a diamond. Handwritten in a neat cursive below the pencil-drawn face was a description. White male, mid to late thirties, brown hair, curly, blue eyes. 6'1", 175 pounds. I snapped a picture of him with my iPhone. When Dad asked Ben about Mustache Man, he said we should talk to Stanley or Rachel. Ben thinks he was associated with the hotel, perhaps as a contract worker or vendor, so the Roths might know. Why didn't your father follow up on this back then? Like I said, he thought Ben was blowing smoke. No one else claimed to have seen this guy, and Stanley wasn't exactly cooperative. He wanted the police off his property, not snooping around even more. My phone dinged, alerting me to an incoming text message. Dad, another lead from the Brooklyn website page. A friend of Trudy's got in touch with me and would like to talk to us. I'm hoping she knows how to FaceTime, or else we add Brooklyn to our travel itinerary. Me, what's wrong with using the phone? Dad, you know the phone sucks when it comes to interviewing. We need to read facial expressions. Makes for a better interrogation. Me, She's a witness, not a suspect. Dad, doesn't matter. Maybe we head to Brooklyn after Belmont. Add a day to trip. Me, whatever you think is best. Dad, any messages from anyone on Cutman page? Me, nope. Dad, Lori? Me, nope. After telling Ray about the woman in Brooklyn, I headed upstairs to pack. I was pretty sure Dad was just looking for an excuse to spend a few days away from Horizon Meadows and turn this into an adventure, relive the good old days. I threw in extra underwear and socks, just in case. Chapter 9 Sunday, November 4th, 2018 Along with my suitcase, I stowed the two boxes of files in the trunk of my car— I figured it would be good to have them with us in case we needed to refer to an old fact or theory. Our plan was to meet with Dr. Jacqueline Blanchard in the morning, right after breakfast, then hit the road no later than 2 o'clock so that we would arrive in Brooklyn in the evening. Dad had arranged to meet Trudy's high school friend on Tuesday morning. I glanced over at Dad in the passenger seat. His expression was that of an eager kid headed to the candy store. Grinning, ear to fucking ear. A case that stymied him for decades now had a chance of being solved, and I could only imagine how satisfying that must have felt. 
definitely a whole lot more rewarding than beating your old buddies at shuffleboard. So, who are we seeing in Brooklyn? I asked. I'd been so busy sorting through the boxes and piecing together the timeline of events that it occurred to me late last night I'd never asked him her name. Sandra Lear. Chandelier? First name Sandra, last name Lear, as in dirty look. Are you serious? What were her parents thinking? Right? I went to school with a guy named Peter Peterson, and I thought that was weird. Poor guy had a stutter. His parents eventually transferred him out of public school to St. Peter's Catholic School in Liberty. I wonder if he's still alive. I'll have to look into that. You're making that up. It's the damn truth. God's honor. We had one stop to make before we headed east. Google Maps instructed me to turn right onto Molover Street, a narrow stretch of road littered with mobile homes. There it is, Dad said, just as Ray described it, white with rust-colored trim and a green awning, the residence of Mr. Coffee Shop Manager, Leonard Berman. Dad banged on the door. A guy with shoulder-length greasy hair opened the door a crack. His cheeks were pockmarked with red splotches his nose broken and self-healed several times. Yet if you looked closely, mentally erased the top layer, you could see that Lenny had been a handsome man in his youth. Whoa, old man, take it easy or you'll bust my door down. Don't want to be suing you for property damage now. Lenny Berman? I asked. Yeah, who wants to know? I'm Detective Susan Ford with the Monticello Police, and this is ex-Detective William Ford. We'd like a quick word with you about an old case, hoping you can help us. Ex-Detective, huh? You two related? Or is the last name a coincidence? I ignored his question. You worked at the Cutman in the 70s. Do you remember Trudy Solomon? No. Should I? She's the coffee shop waitress who went missing in 78. A few days before that, you were fired for harassing her. Does that jog your memory? Oh, yeah, her. What about it? I had nothing to do with that. I told the cops back then. Do you recognize this guy? I held up my phone and showed him the police sketch of Mustache Man. Lenny removed his glasses and squinted. Um, no. He don't look familiar. So you never saw this guy hanging around the hotel? Or bothering Trudy? Like I said, I never seen him. Why you asking? We found Trudy. His expression didn't change. Alive, living in Massachusetts. Yeah. So why you bugging me? Just trying to figure out what happened, that's all. She's not well, and we just want to know what happened to her after she went missing. Well, I don't know that dude in the picture, and I don't know nothing about Trudy. Now leave me alone. He pulled the door shut. I opened the car door for Dad. Do you believe him? I asked. Not a single word. At the midway point between Monticello and our destination, Dad took the wheel. Said he wanted to drive for an hour or so. I leaned my head against the passenger window and closed my eyes. Not to sleep, but to think. Why was I doing this? 
On one level, I was simply indulging Dad's fantasy of finding out what happened to Trudy, giving him one last hurrah. I was just along for the ride. A diversion while the barn's shit show sorted itself out. But on another level, I was actually excited about the prospect of breaking this case with him. It was what I had wanted when I was 13. I was always thrilled when he would run ideas past me, treat me like one of his buddies. Would I have been so gung-ho about taking on this case if he wasn't my sidekick? Or I his? Who was I, Sherlock or Watson? Or were we more like superheroes, Batman and Robin, exposing a villain and seeking justice? I opened my eyes and twisted in my seat when the car slowed down. Just a bit of traffic ahead, Dad said, pointing to the red line snaking across the GPS screen. I nodded wearily, thinking back to the year Trudy disappeared, 1978. That year, a dividing line in my life, before and after. Before April 1978, my family was whole. I had a best friend. My grandfather took me fishing and camping. Every Sunday night, Dad and I would watch Quincy M.E. or Columbo or McMillan and wife and try to solve the case before Jack Klugman or Peter Falk or Rock Hudson did. My mother had no more than a glass of wine, or two, at dinner. On second thought, I might be wrong about that particular memory, as it was my father who woke up early in the morning to make me breakfast, get me off to school. He made excuses for her. She has a headache. She has a tummy ache. She wants to sleep in a bit. Sleep it off was probably more like it. But when I came home from school... She always had an afternoon snack ready and was chatty about her day and genuinely eager to hear about mine. After April 1978, everything went to shit. Lori started hanging out with other girls. My grandfather succumbed to a heart attack in his sleep. My father moved out. On a Sunday night, no less. And Mom began declaring, It's five o'clock somewhere, as she poured herself a drink usually around noontime. This was not to say that Dad wasn't there for me in those after years. He came around the house quite often, often enough to make me think he was looking to reconcile with Mom. Typically, it was under the guise of having to fix something, the doorbell, the garage door, the dishwasher. Once in a while, he would bring me a book. You gotta read this, Susie Q. Oops, Susan, he would say handing me a dog-eared paperback by Agatha Christie, Dick Francis, or P.D. James. I wasn't exactly sure when Dad became obsessed with the Trudy Solomon case, but he did. If memory served me correctly, his frustration set in around November that year, when I saw less and less of him. The Cutman was a summers-only resort, opening shortly before Passover in the spring and closing soon after the Jewish high holidays in the fall. By Thanksgiving, any remaining staff were long gone. Following up on leads and interviewing witnesses became increasingly difficult. But Dad was determined to find new avenues of inquiry. He would read and reread the case file, trying to tilt his theories sideways and backwards, hoping to dislodge a new piece of evidence he could pursue. 
This was also around the time my mother forbade him to talk to me about the case. She told him it was giving me nightmares. It was not. She told him the other detectives were starting to worry about him. They were not. She told him he should just move on, that this case just wasn't worth the stress, which made him more determined to prove her wrong. If I had to surmise a reason for her insistence, I would venture it was because she had it in the back of her head that life would just go back to normal if Dad let go of the case and came home. Ready to take over? Dad asked, exiting the highway. I need to stretch and pee. By the time we checked into the hotel, we were too tired to even nurse one drink at the bar, so we headed straight to our rooms. As I nodded off to sleep, I heard the familiar ding. I tried to ignore it, but curiosity won out. The bright light of the phone blinded me for a moment, but when my eyes adjusted, I saw a message notification. Hi, Susie. How nice to hear from you. High school sure was not a good time for us, but hey, we're adults now. If you want to know the truth, high school was awful for me. I did things I'm not proud of, but I'm not that person anymore. I saw your post about Trudy Solomon. I'm racking my brain trying to remember it. Something about a missing counselor? Merrill tells me that she told you I live in Venice, California. So beautiful out here. My husband and I adopted a child, and she just had a baby of her own. Life's been pretty good. Typical ups and downs. Would love to hear what you're up to, especially with the case. If you're up for a real chat, my number is 310-555-2618. Cheers, Lori. I blinked at the screen. My eyes were moist, but my palms were remarkably dry. Maybe, in times of scarcity, the body made triage decisions about where to deploy its moisture. Chapter 10 Monday, November 5th, 2018 Before meeting Dad at the hotel's breakfast buffet, I wrote to Lori letting her know I would call her in a few days. I figured I'd be pretty distracted these next two days, but I was also looking for an excuse to delay this reunion. At 9.45, we pulled into a visitor's spot at McNair Hospital. At 10 o'clock, the receptionist directed us to sit in the patient waiting area. At 5 after 10, we were ushered into Dr. Blanchard's office, where two leather wingback chairs awaited us. Dr. Jacqueline Blanchard was seated behind an antique mahogany desk, spine straight, fingers folded together. One-inch-long fire-engine red fingernails popped in contrast to her crisp white lab coat. Her Adam's apple was quite pronounced. The doctor who sat across from us hadn't always been a woman. I glanced at Dad, but saw no indication that he was cognizant of this fact. After quick introductions, Dr. Blanchard reiterated what she told Dad on the phone. As I mentioned, I'm happy to provide some information about Trudy Resnick, but I need to steer clear of her medical history. Her voice was breathy and light and much higher than I had imagined, given her likely past. Dad nodded. We understand. She was admitted on July 23, 2008, for extreme distress. 
I can't go into more detail, doctor-patient confidentiality, but I can tell you it's a good thing she sought help. She was accompanied by a woman who, as you can see here, signed her name on the admission paperwork. Dr. Blanchard flipped around the open file and slid it toward Dad. Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart? Like the cook on TV? Dad asked, taking out his reading glasses. Only she spelled it S-T-U-A-R-T. He glanced down at the signature. And what did this Martha Stewart look like? If memory serves me correctly, she was very attractive. And you can tell she had money. Expensive jewelry, designer clothes, carefully manicured nails. Dr. Blanchard glanced quickly at her own carefully manicured nails and lowered them under the table. Guessing late 50s, perhaps early 60s. But I'm not very good at discerning a woman's age, especially back then when I was, uh, younger. Do you know who she was? A relative? A friend? Dad asked. She seemed more like a relative than a friend, if you know what I mean. More like a caretaker than a buddy. Did she ever visit Trudy? No. In fact, soon after Trudy was admitted, we tried to contact this woman to get more information about Trudy, but the number she gave us was out of service, and the address she provided was non-existent. The police tried to track her down as well, but they too were unsuccessful in figuring out who she was. When we spoke by phone last week, you mentioned something about a murder. Do you have reason to believe this woman or Trudy was involved? I asked. Trudy was in my care for four years, and not once did I think she was involved in anything nefarious. I mean, she was in a bad way, but more like shock and fear, not guilt. Many witnesses placed her at a grocery store at the time of the murder. The police interviewed her a few times, but she was quite confused. We didn't realize it at the time she was admitted, but she was in the very early stages of Alzheimer's early-onset Alzheimer's. Trudy was only 57 at the time. As far as Martha Stewart, I have no idea if she had anything to do with the murder. We only spoke briefly during admission intake. Can you tell us about this murder? Dad asked. That I can. It was a pretty big story around here. Trudy's husband was stabbed to death. Trudy's husband? I turned sideways and rested my hand on Dad's arm to prevent him from reacting with an onslaught of exuberant profanity. I felt him grip the armrest of his chair, and he casually nodded, signaling he got my message, loud and clear. Yes, Ed Resnick. Trudy found him dead on the floor in their kitchen when she returned from grocery shopping, stabbed in the neck with a knife. It was clear from his faraway stare that Dad was processing this information, and my mind was going into overdrive. We thought she, or the person who kidnapped her, changed her name to Resnick to avoid being found, but it sounded like she had remarried without first divorcing Ben, or maybe she just took his name to give the appearance of marriage. Perhaps this was a case of Stockholm Syndrome, Maybe Ed Resnick kidnapped her and she developed an affection for him as a way to survive. Or maybe she was kidnapped by someone else 
got away and met Ed. But then why wouldn't she have gone to the police? So many theories were competing in my head. I have a newspaper clipping of the story in her file. Dr. Blanchard shuffled through a few papers and pulled out a Boston Globe article dated Monday, July 21, 2008, the day after the murder. A picture of Ed Resnick appeared below the headline, Waltham Man Murdered in His Apartment. I pulled out my phone, hit the photos icon, and held it up to the newspaper. Well, I'll be damned. I angled the photo toward Dad. Holy. Dad bit his lower lip. Cannoli. I guess Mustache Man does exist. Did exist, Dad. Did exist. Detective John Flannery led us to an interrogation room through a maze of desks, haphazardly arranged on the second floor of the two-story Waltham Police Department building. Just an hour earlier, Dad had called the station to inquire about the Ed Resnick murder. He was patched through to Detective Flannery, who introduced himself as the head of the homicide unit's unsolved case squad. The building is undergoing some renovation and was shot on private office space at the moment, Detective Flannery explained as we entered the small windowless room. No need to apologize, I assured him. We know what that's like. Dad recounted the story of Trudy Solomon and how we were looking to piece together how she'd spent her missing years. We want to determine if she was the victim of criminal acts or has knowledge of criminal acts committed by others. Flannery listened with his head bobbing slightly to the right, as though an invisible string was tugging his ear toward his shoulder. For a man in his fifties, his skin was quite smooth and rather pink, like silly putty. The changes in his expressions were hardly discernible. A slight eyebrow lift, a quick purse of the lips, an upward twitch of his nose that made his nostrils look cavernous. Each understated movement linked to a revelation in Dad's story. Then it was Detective Flannery's turn to talk. First things first. Trudy was not Ed Resnick's wife. The lead detective on the case, Reginald Masters, found no marriage certificate to back that assertion. It appears Trudy simply took Ed's last name. The Waltham lease listed a reference. A landlord who owned a couple of buildings in Alston. Detective Masters tracked down the landlord, and, as you can see from the copy of that earlier lease, they also signed as Ed Resnick and Trudy Resnick. Some landlords back then were funny about renting to unmarried couples, which might explain why they did that. Anyhow, they moved into the Alston apartment on February 1st, 1990, then moved to the Waltham apartment in 1995. He found nothing predating this Alston lease. In a burst of excitement, Dad slapped his hands against his thighs. Jesus! Sorry. Continue, he said. According to Detective Master's report, Resnick was killed sometime between 1 and 2.30 in the afternoon, while Trudy was out shopping at a nearby supermarket. She also stopped at a drugstore to pick up a prescription, an asthma inhaler. His, not hers. When she entered the apartment, she screamed, alarming her next-door neighbor, who called the police. Based on the trajectory of the stab wound, 
Resnick was stabbed in the neck by someone who was three to four inches shorter than he was, so 5'7 or 5'8. He slid a piece of paper across the desk. It's in that coroner's report. According to Trudy's statement, a knife was missing from the kitchen. She said she was certain of this because it was housed in one of those wood multi-knife holders. But it was never recovered, leading Detective Masters to believe this was a spur-of-the-moment attack, not premeditation. But he couldn't say for sure. There's also the possibility of a robbery gone wrong. Was anything taken? Dad asked. Detective Flannery tilted his head forward and peered over his glasses, a subtle scolding gesture. Clearly, he was not accustomed to being interrupted. The place was sparsely furnished, and the few items of value, his watch, a camera, his wallet, were all in the apartment. He was a plumber and general fix-it guy, had an expensive set of tools sitting in the front hallway, and there was some evidence to suggest he was not just some random victim. When Detective Masters pulled Resnick's bank records, he discovered monthly cash deposits of $2,000, each dating back to 1995, a good 13 years before his murder. So I'm thinking some kind of extortion scheme or skimming. When he questioned Trudy about it, she claimed not to know anything about it. Can we speak to Detective Masters? I asked. Unfortunately, he died a couple of years ago. Detective Flannery opened another file that lay on his desk. There's one more thing that may or may not be related. The police were called to Resnick's apartment a year earlier, in 2007, by a neighbor who heard arguing and reported it as a domestic dispute. He looked down at the file. The neighbor's name was Cynthia Lambert, but the officer responding to the call found two men in a heated argument. One was Resnick, the other. He glanced down at his file again, searching for the name. Seems this other guy had a solid alibi for the murder, though. Masters tracked him down and questioned him. Says here he was on an airplane headed to Las Vegas for an automobile dealer's conference. His name? Oh, here it is. Scott Roth. Cynthia Lambert was easy to track down. The police report noted she was a student at Brandeis University at the time of the domestic dispute call. A quick check on LinkedIn, searching both Cynthia Lambert and Brandeis University, yielded Cynthia Lambert Alcott working at an ad agency in Boston. Social media sites, digital fingerprints, forensic DNA, CCTV cameras, tools Dad could only dream of when he was working cases back in his day. She agreed to speak to us, but we didn't have enough time to meet in person and get on the road by 2 o'clock, so we decided to FaceTime with her from the confines of my car. Cynthia was backlit by the late afternoon sunlight pouring through her office window. Her haloed head filled the screen of Dad's iPhone. As I merged onto the mass turnpike, Dad summarized the Trudy Solomon and Ed Resnick cases to her and our reason for wanting to get in touch with her. Wow, I'm not sure how much help I can be, she said, her voice chipper and eager, clearly excited to assist in a police investigation. 
Sometimes witnesses don't know what is or isn't helpful. Even a small detail can help our investigation. For instance, did you hear what they were arguing about? No, it was muffled, but loud. I thought it was Trudy and Ed. Did Trudy and Ed fight often? Not often, but Ed had a short temper, and he could rip into her. Sometimes she came over to my place while he cooled down. She would say it was nothing, that he was all bark and no bite, just needed to let off steam. So if fighting was not that usual, why did you call the cops? Well, it sounded worse than usual. But I guess that's because it was actually two guys and Trudy yelling at each other. Which surprised me because they never had anyone over. See, that's an important detail. It tells me they were reclusive, kept to themselves, kept a low profile, Dad told her. Interesting, yes. I would say that was true about them. If I can make another observation, I got the sense he was protecting her, not controlling her. By any chance, did you see the other guy? Dad asked, likely wanting to confirm that the person who claimed to be Scott Roth actually was Scott Roth. Well, I lingered outside my apartment. I was curious, but I also wanted to make sure that Trudy was okay. I got a look at him when he left the apartment, which was about five minutes after the cops left. Can you describe him? Dad asked impatiently. Um, I think so. The guy looked to be in his mid-forties, but it was hard to tell because he had a severe receding hairline. Curly hair, but because he had lost so much of it on top, he had that bozo the clown thing going on. He was tall, but not towering. Kind of good-looking, even with the bad hair. He was dark, not black, mind you. Just dark hair, dark eyes, tan complexion. Hold on a sec. Gonna text you a picture, Dad said. After a few minutes of silence, she replied. Yep, that's the guy. Dad fist-pumped the air. Is there anything else you could think of that might be helpful? Anything you heard or saw? Like I said, after the police left, they were all more civil to each other. When they parted ways, the guy said, you should report him. And Ed said something like, not gonna happen. I need the money. When I asked Trudy about that later, she said I must have misheard. I never gave it another thought. Well, not until you sent me that message on LinkedIn. How come you didn't report this to the police? Why would I? This conversation happened after the police left. Besides, it never occurred to me that it was important. Just two guys having a disagreement over money. Wait, do you think this balding guy had something to do with Ed's murder? Trudy. Good afternoon, Trudy, Dr. Meadows said. Trudy looked around the office. This reminded her of something. Ah, yes, that lovely Dr. Jack, Jack Blanchard. I remembered something, Trudy said to Dr. Meadows, tipping her head to one side. Wonderful. He had lovely hands. She thought about those hands, long and lean. 
He waved them around like a magician. Martha left me with Jack. She smiled because she remembered to call her Martha, just like she told her to do. Martha said I can keep the money if I keep a secret. What secret? Dr. Meadows asked gently. About Ed. He's dead. She sucked in her lips and pressed them tight against each other. Think. Think. The past felt fuzzy again. Names, dates, places disappearing slowly, like an aging Polaroid, the once vibrant colors now muted and hazy. Ed wanted the money. He kept asking for the money. Now he's dead. Ed who, Trudy? Trudy shook her head. Ed? Chapter 11 Tuesday, November 6th, 2018 Dad and I met in the breakfast lounge of the Days Inn in Marine Park, which, according to Google Maps, was a 10-minute drive to Sandra Lear's house in Mill Basin. Good morning, Dad. We thought about sharing a room to save some money, but decided that having alone time during this road trip was worth the extra $96. Oh, I forgot to ask you. Dad began as he poured milk over his Cheerios. Dr. Blanchard. A man, right? Well, actually a woman. Although, yes, I think she once was a man. Like Tootsie? Well, at least he hadn't lost his observational skills. No, Dad, not like Tootsie. He knitted his brow. Oh, I get it. Like Bruce Jenner. Ding, 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 I said as I tapped my nose three times. Hey, some good news on the witnesses' front. Last night, I heard from three people who responded to my message on the Summers at the Cutman Facebook page. They claim to have information we might find helpful. I'll set up calls with them when we get back home. Man, this is really coming together, Susan. Dad picked up his bowl of Cheerios and downed the last drop of milk. Let's go. My parents bought this house in the mid-60s for $15,000, Sandra Lear told us. I'm putting it on the market next week. Guess how much? Before we could venture a guess, she answered her question. 700000 Can you believe that? This little house with a postage stamp backyard going for three quarters of a million dollars. I told them to sell this house years ago. Glad they didn't listen to me. I looked around at what 700000 got you in this part of Brooklyn. A 1,700-square-foot semi-attached house on a 2,100-square-foot lot. Three small bedrooms, one-and-a-half baths, a living room, eating kitchen, no dining room, and finished basement. Probably not mentioned in the listing, a shared driveway with your neighbor. That was bound to lead to some interesting turf disputes. It's the neighborhood that's driving up the price. If you drive a few blocks further in, you'll see the ornate McMansions. The real estate agent calls the area very desirable, Sandra said, rolling her eyes. My partner and I interviewed Trudy's neighbors that summer, Dad said. 
but I don't have you or your parents on the list of people we spoke to. Trudy lived a few blocks over, so we weren't exactly neighbors. I don't think her neighbors would even know me. We usually hung out here at my house. She was embarrassed to have friends over. Her mom was something of a pack rat. You know, a hoarder. She air-quoted hoarder. So what can you tell us about Trudy? I asked, steering the conversation back to the matter at hand. Oh, yes, of course. Trudy and I were friends in high school, James Madison High. Fun fact, we were two years behind Chuck Schumer. The senator? Dad asked. Yes. We weren't friends with him, but I remember Trudy had a crush on him. Wouldn't that have been something if she'd dated a future U.S. senator? But neither of us were dating material back then. A couple of plain Janes. We pretty much kept to ourselves. I wouldn't say we were loners, but we were lonely. She tended to keep to herself, so she wasn't invited to any parties, nor did she join any clubs or activities. I broke out of my shell in college, but she didn't want to go. She struggled in school. If you read her letters, you'll see why. Are these the letters? I asked, pointing to a short stack of papers in the middle of the table. Yes, my unprofessional diagnosis is dyslexia. Although back then, before anyone had any real understanding of learning disabilities, she just figured she was dumb. Sandra cast her eyes down to the table covered with memorabilia. Anyway, my mother passed away two months ago, leaving this house to my brother and me. Neither of us wanted to move back here or manage it as a rental property, hence the for sale sign. We've been taking turns going through old stuff, tossing what we don't want to keep, donating the rest. In some way, it's been an interesting trip down memory lane. My mother kept photo albums, diaries, letters, art projects, school records. As I scanned the table, I wondered if my mother kept any stuff from my youth. In a box labeled Sandra, I found letters Trudy wrote to me the summer you claimed she disappeared. Only at the time, I didn't realize she disappeared. I just thought she stopped writing to me. Why did you think she just stopped writing to you? I graduated law school in the spring of 1978 and was studying for the bar exam. I told her that I needed to concentrate on the exam, and she wouldn't hear from me for a while. She took it as a slight, as you'll see in the last letter she wrote to me. She was definitely going through a rough patch, and, well, I pretty much told her I didn't have the time to help. When you read the letters, you'll see she was upset about something— she doesn't spell it out, but it sounds like she was being harassed by someone at the hotel. After taking the exam, I wrote to her to apologize, but I never heard back. Sandra sighed. I assumed she didn't want to forgive me. I certainly didn't think something bad had happened to her. I was so wrapped up in my own shit. I just figured she'd moved on with her life, and I was no longer a part of it. So you never heard from her again? Dad asked. No. I moved away soon after the exam. I was pretty burnt out and spent nearly two months gallivanting around Europe before returning to look for a job. 
When I landed a junior position at a law firm in the city, I was working 60 to 70 hours a week. Do you mind if we take these letters? We'll send them back to you after we've had a chance to read through them. If you think it will help, sure. One last question, and we'll be on our way, I said. Have you ever heard Trudy mention an Ed Resnick? Ed Resnick. No. But there is a mention of a guy that she refers to as S.R. in the letters. All she said is that she's scared of him but doesn't want to reveal who he is, hence the initials, I guess. Now I feel somewhat responsible for what may have happened to her. I could have done something about it. If I just... Don't blame yourself, Dad said. Would have, could have, should have is not going to change a thing. Pretty sure he said this not only to assuage Sandra's misgivings, but his as well. S.R.? Scott fucking Roth? Dad snarled, lingering in front of the car door. Or Stanley Roth? Or any hotel worker or guest with the first initial S and the second initial R? Come on, Susan. We find out that Scott paid a visit to Ed, had some mysterious argument with him, and you think he is not the person Trudy is referring to in the letters? Scott was 18 at the time of Trudy's disappearance. Do you think he was harassing a 27-year-old woman? Ever see The Graduate? And she wasn't even as old as Mrs. Robinson. Maybe they had an affair and she broke it off, and he, being young and in love, couldn't take no for an answer. The Graduate? Really, that's the basis for your theory? And from Sandra's description of Trudy, I wouldn't exactly call her a seductress. Besides, why would Scott get into a beef with Ed years after Trudy left? Okay, point taken. Let's just run down what we have established. As I turned the key in the ignition, Dad fished around the glove compartment for a pad and pencil. He licked the end of the pencil with his tongue and flipped back the cardboard cover of the spiral-bound notebook. My phone rang as I pulled away from the curb. I pressed my thumb on the speaker icon embedded in the steering wheel. Hello? Where are you? Chief Eldridge's voice crackled through the audio system. Still in Brooklyn. I'm heading home now. Good, good. I need you to come in first thing tomorrow morning. This Calvin Barnes thing just became a bit of a shit show. Did you get a chance to speak to Rhonda? We could really use someone on your side right now. What happened? I released my right hand from the steering wheel. The moisture left behind quickly dissipated. The family's lawyer just filed a civil suit. My heart rate ticked up a few notches. I glanced over at Dad, and he flashed a reassuring smile. I spoke to Rhonda. I'm pretty sure she isn't going to come out publicly to support me. But she said there are members willing to go on the record and give a positive character assessment based on my work with the group. Okay, try and make that happen soon. Is Will with you? I'm here, Cliff. Okay, any new developments in the Trudy Solomon case? As a matter of fact, there are, Dad said. We'll fill you in tomorrow morning. Sounds good. And Susan? Yeah. Hang in there.
No words pass between us as we listen to a foreigner song on a classic rock station. When a Led Zeppelin tune came on, Dad lowered the volume knob. How about we theorize a little and figure out our next move? Dad patted my right arm. At the very least, it will keep your mind off the Barnes case. I squinted at the gas indicator and calculated how far into Connecticut I could get before having to refuel. Norwalk, maybe Fairfield. Susan, are you listening? Sure, Dad. I took a deep breath. Okay, we know that Trudy and Ed were together from at least 1990. Let's assume for a moment that Ed is the mustached guy Ben saw hanging around Trudy at the hotel. Did she run away with him? Did he kidnap her? Or did they run into each other years later and start dating? I'd like to go back and see Lenny. I sensed he knew something when we showed him the police sketch of Ed. And he didn't flinch when we told him Trudy was found. Alive. Now that we have a name, let's lean on him a bit harder. Make him think we know more than we know. I drummed my fingers on the steering wheel. We also need to interview the woman who lived next door to Trudy back in 1978. Uh, what's her name? Eleanor Campbell. Yeah, her. She might have seen Ed lurking about. If she and Trudy were close, maybe Trudy confided in her about an extramarital relationship or a stalker. And we need to get in touch with Scott Roth, Dad said. Somehow, he figures in this. He knew Trudy was alive in 2007, yet kept that fact to himself. According to what Cynthia just told us, it doesn't sound like Scott was putting the squeeze on Ed for money. It sounded like he wanted Ed to snitch on someone. So it's entirely possible Scott knew what Ed was up to. So if not Scott, who was Ed's mark? That's the person with motive. Yep. But we also can't dismiss that Trudy might have killed Ed. Perhaps before she went to the grocery store. Cynthia said they dusted it up every so often. The autopsy report indicated a person three to four inches shorter than Ed. That would map out to Trudy. But you know who is also three to four inches shorter than Ed? Ben. He was the one who had mentioned the mustache man. Maybe he tracked him down. Revenge for absconding with his wife. Interesting theory, Dad. But you said yourself he seemed genuinely surprised when you told him about Trudy. We should keep in mind that it could have just been a random murder, a robbery gone sideways. There was traffic ahead. I pumped the brake gently. Dad's head was down as he scribbled in the tiny notepad. He looked up momentarily when the car came to a full stop, frowned, then went back to writing. Just some construction ahead, I said. We sat silently for a few minutes. I sorted through the suspects and motives in my head. I sensed Dad was doing the same. Dad tapped the eraser end of the pencil against the dashboard, sounding like the opening baseline of Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit. Cynthia Lambert said that Trudy was involved in the argument. So contrary to her statement to Detective Masters, she did know about this money. Dad paused stared down at his notebook and scribbled something. 
What about the people who contacted you through Facebook? We're talking to a lifeguard tomorrow, Brian something. A guest and a cocktail waitress said they can chat with us on Wednesday. I'll confirm the times with them and let you know. And then there's the woman who escorted Trudy to McNair Hospital, Martha Stewart. Not sure how we'll track her down, but let's not lose sight of the fact that she gave false contact information. Dad wagged the pencil at me. That makes her suspicious in my book. Dad pulled out the letters Sandra Lear gave us and leafed through them. My thoughts drifted to the Facebook messages. The lifeguard claimed to have information I would find enlightening, wanted to get something off his chest. The cocktail waitress wrote that she could shed some light on Trudy's marriage. The guest was friends with Scott and wanted to talk to me about a conversation they had about Trudy soon after she disappeared. I wasn't keen on rolling this case around in my head for the next two hours. Dad, do you mind if I switch on a podcast? Depends. What podcast? My favorite murder? I think you'll get a kick out of it. It's these two women chatting about true crime stories. For the next hour, we listened to the podcast's hosts banter about the kidnapping and murder of Polly Class in Petaluma, California. Can we listen to another? Dad asked. Sure. He took my phone and scrolled through the list. Episode 46, Skippers Unite. Sounds interesting. It's about the two serial killers, Leslie Allen Williams and Israel Keys. Let it rip. By the time I dropped Dad off at Horizon Meadows, we had listened to three episodes of My Favorite Murder. I drove home in silence, needing to clear my head of murders and kidnapping. However short-lived that would be. Ray would be eager to hear what we discovered on this little road trip. But I had one more thing to do before laying out the case to Ray. I killed the ignition and called Lori Roth McDonald. Ray left the porch light on, but I stumbled up the stairs anyway. Gotta remember to fix the loose board on the second step. I could see the glow of the television from the entryway. Ray's head was tipped slightly forward. I gently placed the keys in the glass dish and tiptoed into the living room. When I turned off the television, Ray twitched. Hey, babe, he mumbled. Sorry, didn't mean to wake you. No worries, I was just resting my eyes. He stretched his arms to the ceiling and stood quickly, as if to prove he wasn't asleep. So, how'd it go? For the next 30 minutes, I laid out the plot for him, and he occasionally interrupted with a wow or a holy shit. Then I told him about my conversation with Lori. All in all, my chat with Lori went much better than I thought it would. We had different versions of our breakup. In her version, we simply got interested in different things and became different people when we hit our teens. She recounted a story about how I once tried to get her to smoke weed, and although she acted all cool, it scared her. You were so badass, so rebellious, she said. I just felt like a goody two-shoes who wanted to get good grades and not get into trouble. That sincerely surprised me. I didn't see myself as some rebellious hooligan. I pretty much towed the line. I skipped class once in a while or snuck into the movie theater, 
or blue curfew, by no more than an hour, if there was a party down by the field. But I never got in real trouble. Didn't really want to. So I smoked pot once in a while or snuck out at night a couple of times, I said to Ray. I wasn't Sandra D., but I certainly wasn't John Bender, or the female version of John Bender. Who the hell is John Bender? Really? Judd Nelson played this rebel character named John Bender in The Breakfast Club? He shook his head as I rattled off the cast. Molly Ringwald, Ali Sheedy, Anthony Michael Hall? Never heard of him. I scrunched my face and shook my head. Was he asleep during the 80s? Anyway, she got the sense that I didn't want to be friends with her anymore. I have to say, it's pretty damn interesting how we saw things so differently. She even claimed she had no knowledge of her mother banning me from the hotel grounds. Not sure I believe that. After Lori and I aired our perceived slights, the mood shifted. I could have been wrong, and perhaps it was wishful thinking, but I felt we settled into the familiar banter of old friends. Then we got around to Trudy Solomon. When I told her about the resurrection of the case, she claimed she barely remembered it. I reminded her that we sleuthed around the hotel interrogating guests and staff if they had seen her, but Lori insisted she had no recollection of ever doing that. She didn't even recall her father reaming us out when he caught us questioning the bellhops. To me, that case was everything. It was a way to get closer to my dad. It was mysterious and fascinating. But to her, it was probably just a game, nothing particularly meaningful or memorable. I asked her if she was still close to her siblings, and she said she spoke frequently with Merrill, occasionally with Joshua, but rarely heard from Scott. I didn't mention Scott's possible involvement. I figured I could bring it up when I better understood how he fit into all this. I trudged up the stairs, feeling the weight of the past two days. Exhausted was putting it mildly, but I wasn't taking any chances. I shut the bathroom door, opened the cabinet door under the sink, and reached behind the rolls of toilet paper. There it was, the bottle of Percocet prescribed to me after a bullet ripped through my thigh. The last two pills. Hello, you. Chapter 12 Wednesday, November 7th, 2018 Eldridge's office was enclosed in glass. He usually kept the blinds rolled up to signal that his door was always open. But this morning, the blinds were drawn, the door shut. Fluorescent bulbs buzzed like mosquitoes above my head. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, Susan. I read the civil complaint last night. They feel confident in their version of the story, and all we have is your word against theirs. Eldridge came around from behind his desk and sat on the edge. You really should have waited for backup. But I'm not here to lecture you about that again. In hindsight, I get it. But they would have been gone by the time backup showed up. Eldridge shook his head. Look, I know you're a fair-minded cop. You've got an outstanding record. But there are two witnesses, and yes, I know they're criminals. 
saying that Calvin Barnes's hands were in the air when you shot him. I'm just asking you to think very carefully about the statement you gave claiming you saw something in Calvin's hand. Are you 100% sure? I threw up my hands. Do you think I'm making this up? I said, perhaps a bit too defensively. Chief, when one of your officers sees a gun pointed in her direction, are you suggesting she should say, hey, time out, everyone. Did you just pull a gun on me? Yes, I'm damn sure I saw a gun. Eldridge slid his fingers back and forth along his throat. Whoa there, Susan. He hopped off the edge of the desk and towered over me. It all happened very quickly, and the mind can play tricks in a situation like that. Tell me again what happened. He sat back down at his desk and clasped his hands like a prim schoolmarm. From the beginning. I closed my eyes. I played the scene out in my mind as I had done dozens, probably close to a hundred times before. I opened my eyes and recounted, once again, how that night unfolded. I had just gotten off duty and was driving past the abandoned warehouses when I spotted two parked vehicles. That's when I saw flashlight beams bouncing off the windows from the inside. At first I thought, no biggie, probably a bunch of underage kids drinking. But when I peeked inside the window, I saw Calvin and Melvin Barnes, Wayne Railman, and two other guys standing around a table with an assortment of drugs laid out, like they were perusing merchandise at a flea market. At that point, I didn't know who was selling or who was buying. I went back to my car, called for backup, and then positioned myself by the window. Watching them conduct business, I was able to discern that Calvin, Melvin, and Wayne were the sellers. Then they started packing up, and, well, I decided to go in with my gun drawn. I yelled for everyone to get on the floor. Melvin Barnes heeded my command and laid down on the ground, but the two buyers took off toward the side exit. I could see Wayne Railman off to the side to my right on his knees. Calvin Barnes was about 10 feet in front of me, pointing what I thought was a gun and yelling, kill the bitch. And that's when I felt the bullet hit my thigh. I didn't realize it was Wayne who had shot me. I thought Calvin had shot me, and I thought he was going to go for the kill, so I took aim at him and fired. Wayne ran over to Calvin. He said, hang in there, Calvin. That bitch will pay for what she done. Then Wayne stood up, aimed his gun on me, and that's when backup arrived. Wayne dropped his gun and got down on his knees with his hands on his head, yelling, bitch, you killed Calvin. I took a breath and wiped away an escaped tear. I was just so sure Calvin Barnes also had a gun in his hand. Eldridge plucked a tissue from the silver box on his desk and offered it to me. Were you able to get any character references? I'll remind Rhonda. She said she would get back to me this week. Eldridge stood up from the edge of the desk, signaling the end of the reprimand. Is there anything else, sir? Not at the moment. Go find out what happened to Trudy. With the Eldridge meeting in the rearview mirror, I spent the next hour setting up phone meetings with the lifeguard, the hotel guest, and the cocktail waitress. With limited time and funds, Dad agreed that Skyping would have to suffice. The lifeguard wrote to tell me he could hop on a call later that day. 
The hotel guest and the cocktail waitress were both available the next day. It was noon and I had some time to kill, so I drove to the warehouse. I hadn't been back there since the reconstruction exercise back in early September. I parked my car in the exact spot I parked it that night, August 25th. It was unusually hot and muggy for late summer, and a cluster of gnats encircled me when I got out of the car that night to chase away what I thought were teenage boys drinking in the warehouse. The place was a frequent rendezvous point for underage drinking. I should have let it go, ignored it. Now the cold was biting. It was just shy of 20 degrees, but the relentless wind from the north made it feel a hell of a lot icier. Although the warehouse where the shooting had taken place was abandoned, the small one across from it was owned by a local Hasidic guy, Mordecai Little. He operated an antique store a couple hundred yards up the road and kept excess or in-need-of-repair inventory in this warehouse. I walked around the perimeter of the abandoned building. The police tape had been taken down a few weeks ago. When I got to the front door, I hesitated, then took a deep breath before turning the handle. The air was slightly warmer inside, so I slid off my gloves and shoved them into my pocket. I stood in the spot I stood in that night and conjured up the figures of Calvin, Melvin, Wayne, and the two buyers. What did I see in Calvin's hand? I'd been so sure it was a gun. Was it possible I saw Wayne's gun and assumed Calvin had one too? Maybe Eldridge was right, the mind playing tricks in a stressful situation. Or maybe it was unconscious bias. Did I harbor unacknowledged prejudice against minorities? I'd like to think not, but I was not that naive to believe I was immune from such thinking. A wave of nausea sent me fleeing outside to the corner of Mordecai Little's warehouse, where I upended my breakfast. I remained doubled over until the last remnant of my breakfast sandwich landed on the grassy area between my feet. My back ached, and I stretched skyward with both my arms to relieve the tension. That was when I saw it. A white, baseball-sized CCTV camera lodged under the eave, facing out to where my car was parked. My mind started to race. Was this camera operational? How long had it been there? Could there be footage from the night of the shooting? Did it even matter, since this camera was outside, not where the incident occurred? I snapped a picture of the CCTV camera with my phone and texted Eldridge, asking him if anyone was aware of this. I immediately saw the three dots, indicating he was texting me back. Cliff, let me check, but you are not to get involved. I'll have Marty run this down. Me, today? Cliff, yes, today. Me, okay. I checked my watch. Dad and I were supposed to Skype with the lifeguard at two. It was nearly one o'clock, and I had told Dad I would meet him at his apartment at 1.30. My mouth was sour. I scrounged around the inside of my car for gum or mints. All I could find was an empty Altoids tin. I was not sure how long that water bottle had been sitting in the cup holder. Perhaps a week. No more than two. I rinsed out my mouth with the two inches of tepid water and spat it out, 
before slamming the car door shut. I found Dad in the game room playing pool with one of his buddies. He was holding a pool cue in his left hand and a little square box of blue chalk in his right palm. He placed the chalk on the edge of the billiards table and lined up the shot. Two women were perched on bar stools nearby. They applauded when Dad sank a ball into a pocket. His cheerleaders. Two more shots, Susan, he said, rubbing the chalk onto the end of the tapered cue. The two ball, then the eight ball. Dad leaned over the table and hit the white cue ball, applying a little English. The cue ball, now besmirched with a powdery blue dot on its smooth surface, spun into the blue ball, which in turn swiveled into a side pocket. Without saying a word, he strode over to the other side of the table. With the tip of the pool cue, he tapped the far corner pocket to indicate his intention. He rested the cue between his thumb and forefinger, bent forward at the waist, and tapped the cue ball with just enough finesse that it ricocheted off the far bumper and careened into the eight ball, knocking it into the corner pocket. The two women clapped and gushed. Dad bowed slightly at the waist while making flourishing circles with his right hand as though he were honoring a king, or in this case, two queens. You owe me a beer, Mitch. He inserted the cue in the wall cabinet, then reset the 15 balls in the plastic triangle. Be with you in one second, Susan. He sauntered off to the corner of the room and yacked it up with a couple of guys playing cards. Dad the hustler. Dad the show-off. Dad the eligible bachelor. Dad the socializer. When he looked over at me, I over-dramatized looking at my watch. He slapped one of the guys on the back and finally headed my way. As we exited the game room, I told him about my little discovery at the warehouse. Sometimes it's luck that turns things around, like the social security number in the Solomon case, he said. This could be your lucky break. I'm not counting my chickens just yet. It's a long shot that there even is a recording, let alone something worthwhile on it. But as you like to say, never leave a stone unturned. Hello, Brian. Dad and I huddled on his couch so that we both fit in the frame of my laptop computer. Brian appeared to be sitting on a bar stool at a kitchen island. I could make out a high-end stovetop behind him, a Gen Air or a Wolf, the one with the red knobs. I took the lead and laid out the case from the moment the state troopers found the bones along the highway, the body still unidentified. You mentioned that you can offer something enlightening, Something only you would know that might help us understand what happened to Trudy, I said. What I'm about to tell you I haven't told anyone, except my wife. When I saw your inquiry on Facebook, well, I just felt it was time to come clean. Actually, my wife prodded me. Maybe this is information that I should have shared with the cops 40 years ago, but I couldn't. And I'm not sure it would have made a difference. Just tell us what you know, Dad interjected, a trace of impatience in his voice. Well, here goes. I had an affair with Rachel Roth. Brian paused, perhaps expecting Dad or me to say something, but we were stunned into silence. I was 22, she was 38. She was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. Well, Dad was right about one thing. 
the graduate. He'd just pegged the wrong couple. Rachel was looking for attention and affection. Stanley was a philanderer, getting it on with the women who stayed at the hotel for weeks while their husbands worked in the city. And Rachel knew about this? Rachel said they had an understanding, an arrangement. They were essentially a married couple living separate lives, and she was fine with that. Together for the kids, she said. But seeing that they are still together, they must have decided to make it work as empty nesters. I'm sure it has to do with all the money they got after they sold the hotel. I don't know the details, but I remember she told me that her father made Stanley the beneficiary of the hotel, so he probably ended up controlling the purse strings, which meant she was stuck with him if she wanted to live high on the hog. What does this have to do with Trudy Solomon? Dad asked. Just getting to that. The reason I contacted you was because of a conversation I had with Rachel about a week or so after Trudy went missing. She was very concerned about Scott. He was a moody kid, didn't get along with Stanley at all, didn't get along with anyone, really. A bit of a loner. Rachel suspected Scott was somehow involved with Trudy because she saw them together a few times, usually whispering and trying not to be seen. And you didn't mention any of this to the police because, I asked, I just couldn't say anything. She begged me to keep our affair secret, and I was afraid if I was pressed on what I heard from her, there would be questions as to how I knew all this, and Rachel didn't want Scott questioned by the police. She arranged to have him stay with her sister in New Jersey for the rest of that summer. Then he went off to college. Do you think Scott was involved in Trudy's disappearance? I honestly didn't think so at the time. I spoke to Scott before he left, and he told me I got it all wrong, that Trudy was just a friend, and I should mind my own business and go to... Well, he alluded to the fact that he knew about me and his mom. But I always got the feeling he was hiding something, something which may or may not have anything to do with Trudy's disappearance. It just seemed like he was in a bad place that summer even before Trudy went missing. Like a huge pane of skyscraper glass crashing down onto the pavement, my notion of Rachel Roth shattered into a million pieces. She'd been June Cleaver to my mom's Joan Crawford, the perfect mom who tended to her four children, kept her home immaculate, knew all the repeat guests and staff by name, didn't smoke, sipped the occasional cocktail, attended Sabbath services every Friday evening, and stood lovingly by her husband's side every Sunday, greeting new guests. Was it all a facade? Did you continue to see Rachel after the summer? I asked. No, she broke it off. I was just her summer boy toy. Thinking back on it, I would say she was pretty manipulative. Got what she wanted by hook or crook. I'm pretty sure I was not her first dalliance, nor her last. I glanced at Dad, who looked shell-shocked by the conversation. I turned back to the screen. Anything else you want to get off your chest? Nope, that's all I got. I have to say I felt relieved when you posted that Trudy was still alive. 
I've been carrying around some amount of guilt because I never told anyone about this. I mean, like I said, Scott didn't seem like the kind of person to harm someone. But in hindsight, that was for the police to figure out. I was just a dumb kid, thinking with my dick, not my brain. One last question. Did you know an Ed Resnick? Skinny guy with blue eyes and a bushy mustache. I positioned the sketch in front of the laptop camera. Brian squinted, then shook his head. Not ringing any bells. Within seconds of ending the Skype session, Dad finally said something. Fuckity fuck fuck. Yeah, sounded about right. Trudy. Trudy and her nurse sat hip to hip at the edge of the exercise pool. You know what would be lovely, Maxine? Trudy said to the nurse. No, what? The nurse replied. I should take swimming lessons. Problem is, I don't think Ben is going to let me. He said he didn't want some guy touching me. Trudy tittered. You can do whatever you want, Trudy. You don't have to listen to Ben. Trudy leaned in closer to the nurse. You have to admit, the lifeguard is super cute. You got a crush on him? The nurse asked. I do not. Trudy held up her thumb and pointer, spread a few inches apart. Okay, this much. The nurse laughed. Trudy thought about the lifeguard. And the rumors. Him and Mrs. R. Brian only likes older women. Really now? Oh, yeah. But I don't blame Mrs. R. Trudy leaned in closer and whispered, Her husband, um, he, well, he wasn't nice to her. She sat quietly, splashing the water with her feet, then suddenly stopped and said softly, he wasn't nice to anybody. The nurse patted Trudy's thigh. You want to swim, Trudy? I never took swimming lessons. Ben wouldn't let me. The nurse reached out her hand. Come on, I'll show you. Detective Susan Ford and her dad wasted no time digging around in the past to find answers. After talking to folks who were around back then, it seems clear that Will was right. Something bad happened to Trudy. And members of the powerful Roth family seemed to be involved. Will the recollections of one of these new witnesses finally provide a break in the case? You'll just have to tune in to episode three to find out. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so much. Camcat Unwrapped also offers other Camcat books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped 
is where book lovers meet.